I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Meg, what seemed closer to being a real golf tournament to you? The Zurich Classic on the PGA Tour or Live Adelaide? Garrett, uh, really can't believe that's a that's a legitimate question. But <laughs> Adelaide, Adelaide delivered. It was, I mean, if you're if you're live, you know, setting up the the watering hole, I believe was what it was called, that the par three with and, and Kepka's hole in one. Is is that I an mean, Australian thing, by the way? The watering <laughs> hole? Is there some kind of like uh is that a term that people use? I was not I was not tuned in to live Adelaide this weekend. I was fully in on the Chevron. I'm not sure if Arlo, you and your uh, Arlo and 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 Jerry and and the crew dug into that at all, but okay. um, yeah, yeah, they usually it, do provide some great historical cultural context on that yes, telecast. Yes, very good at that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of the dream that you had when you're setting that up. Is that that type of uh, environment comes Sunday, and the crowds and the 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 fanfare that was you know they welcomed live in in Adelaide. Um, I don't know if they're not trying to copy that. I don't think you can mimic that every week. Yeah. But if not, they're not trying to copy that with, you know, the places they're going, the the underserved spots that are are wanting professional golf. Um, I mean, that's I always thought the big differentiator Liv could have. Right. Um, and they haven't done that with the majority of their schedule in the United States. So, I mean, I think you got to look at this weekend as a massive success for them. Um, we'll, we'll see if they try and mimic it elsewhere. I, I mean, the. The head scratching decisions have continued from you know from the very beginning into this year with some of the things they're doing. So I wouldn't expect you know them to kind of get it together and make some logical decisions moving forward. But you never know. I I mean, gotta answer the question. I'll give it to Live Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the Zurich Classic uh, really was pretty brutal this past weekend. And you know the one strategic decision that really seems to be working out well for Live. Aside from going to Australia, which obviously was smart, and going to Adelaide specifically. But the strategic decision that really seemed smart at this point was putting their tournaments opposite the most sort of uh, <laughs> moribund, I guess would be the term. That's a, that's an <laughs> adjective that I've seen in writing but maybe never said aloud. The most moribund PGA Tour events, uh, of which the Zurich Classic is certainly one, though – I will give a shout out to Nick Hardy, who is part of the winning team this week, has been on the podcast a couple of times. Exciting young player, really fun to talk to, nice guy. And so I'm glad he won. But this tournament just really isn't it so far. And uh, Adelaide did deliver that hole-in-one from Chase Kepka. That was a moment. I'm not sure that I thought it was as cool as some people thought it was, <laughs> because it was basically just like a store brand TPC Scottsdale 16th hole kind of situation. But Certainly, the excitement was was valid there. So I, I you know, hey, uh, you got to hand it to Live. We'll see if they can replicate that kind of atmosphere at uh, in Oklahoma, or I, I believe is where right. they're going next. I, I'm right. not sure and, that that's going to happen. And I'm happy. I mean, happy for the fans in Australia that they got that experience. I mean, if that's what you're going for for a fun time and to see some excitement, I mean, you got that. Yeah. yeah. Shout out PGA Tour for uh, abandoning Australia <laughs> and embittering an entire nation. All right. You're listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. That is Meg Atkins. And today we're going to talk about the Chevron Championship, primarily the two of us. This is the first women's major of the year. And this past weekend, for the first time, the event formerly known as the Dinah Shore took place somewhere other than the Palm Springs area. And we'll discuss whether it still feels like an actual major. But first, I'm going to bring on Michael Kaiser to talk about some big news in the golf development world. The Kaiser family is the one behind the resorts at Bandon Dunes, Sand Valley, and Cabot Cape Breton. And last week, Michael and his brother Chris announced that they will create another resort, this one outside of Denver, Colorado. It will be called Rodeo Dunes, not Rodeo Dunes. 
And the first course will be designed by longtime Corin Crenshaw associate, Jimmy Craig. All right, let's go to me and Michael. So, Michael, before we get into the backstory of how Rodeo Dunes came about, let's just set a quick timeline here because I'm sure people are curious. When does construction start on the first course and around when do you expect it to open for play? Uh, good question. Construction begins next next year. This year we're doing uh, pre-development and we're working on things like getting roads out to the construction site, building a water pipeline, uh, starting to work on water storage, some of the the uh, less exciting components to a project. Next year uh, we're going to build the first golf course and it should be uh ready for the world, let's say May 1 of the following year of 2025. 2025. Okay, May 1st. Are there any plans for additional courses at this point? I know that's uh, that's well into the future, but what, what have you got going on? No, I'm glad you asked because uh, it is our intention to come out of the gates pretty quickly with two golf courses. Uh, Jimmy Craig has routed uh, one and Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw have routed the other. We're going to build those in pretty quick succession. succession. Um, and then we hope to, uh, you know, we'll take a brief pause, but uh, we hope to then get going with the third course pretty quickly uh, after that. We currently have land and we're hoping to expand our boundaries, but right now we have land, great land for six golf courses. You know, and we always take it one at a time, but given the location and the quality of the dunes, we're going to be a little less conservative and, and move toward two and then three and hopefully well beyond uh, re- relatively quickly. Right. And so just for some context, at Bandon Dunes, it took somewhere in the range of, I suppose, 20 years to get to the 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 five or six course mark yeah. to get to sheep ranch and that that process will be accelerated it sounds like at, at rodeo dunes yeah i hope if all goes well if people listen to this and come out and play it and then enjoy it and tell their friends to come check it out yeah i think we'll go slightly faster you know bandon in, in the big picture of golf development has has developed relatively you know quickly um, so sure. I, I would certainly be comfortable with that time frame, but I do imagine that we'll be able to go a little bit, a little bit faster, uh, here. And, um, you know, Ban- un- unlike Bandon, there are fabulous places to stay nearby, uh, not the least of which is the city of Denver, which is a great city. Uh, that wasn't the case at Bandon. And a lot of our resources go into building the things that don't necessarily attract people to our properties, right? So by just being able to focus on the golf for now, we're able to build it a, a quicker uh, clip and then add in due time, the lodging and the restaurants and the things we all appreciate, but really focus our resources and our time on the golf. All right. So going back in time a bit, how did you find this piece of land? Uh, in the big scheme of things, it, it couldn't have been easier to find because it was hiding in, in plain sight. And since announcing it, and even before, I heard from a lot of people that, you know, I've been driving past that forever and I always thought it'd be a great golf course. And to all of them, I said, well, why didn't you call me and tell me Could we could have sped this up? Uh, my brother Chris and I were uh, supposed to go down to Sweeten's Cove. We've still never been. Our uh, flight was delayed. We're in uh, at Midway. Uh, due to a storm on both ends. And we started chatting very casually about a business model, um, which we don't have to get into, but it led to the question, I wonder if there's any interesting golf land near Bally Neal, which sounds silly if you've ever been to Bally Neal. Neither one of us had at the time. <clears throat> so uh, our flight was canceled. I got home that night, logged on to Google Earth, saw that it was surrounded by sand and interesting contours. And it didn't take more than a minute or two to pan west um, toward you know Denver and, and see that movement continuing uh, until I saw the first big exposed sand. So if, if anybody goes online now, uh, you see the site. It, it's like an exposed dune, you know, from from a hundred thousand feet. And I forgot the first town where I saw that, uh, but a second after that. Um, there's another there's another big exposure and then um, Fort Green is the one in the middle. It's it's quite um, 
I hope I'm getting that name right, but it's been many years since I've looked at that town. But then at Ragen is ours, the furthest west. So when you when you look at it from space, you see these huge, these three huge blowouts uh, moving uh, westward across Highway 76 toward Denver. Uh, that couldn't be easier to spot. So so that was the easy part. It took about two minutes. The hard part was convincing the landowner to uh, let us build a golf course in his backyard. You know, he, he's, he's a rancher, you know, oil man, uh, runs a rodeo business, um, played golf once and walked off the course, you know, before he was done. So th- that, that was the real challenge was convincing uh, my now partner, Mike Servi and, and friend uh, that uh, this, it was a crazy idea, but it was a crazy idea worth exploring with us. And that took most of the last four years. I wonder whether this is one of the first golf developments that was discovered on Google Earth. Do you know whether there's a precedent for that? I know I, I don't know, but I, I I'm guessing most of the ones that are discovered now uh, Google Earth is involved, right? It might not I mean this was discovered yeah, sure. that's sort of, part of the research process. Yeah, it's part of the research process now for any site that I'll go on. I was on it today. Um, there, there is so much information available. When Craig Altum found Sand Valley, he did it with like a road atlas and looked for, you know, gravel, you know, mines. But it's, um, you know, 20% of the globe and the country and most states are covered in sand. Sand is everywhere. And it's easy to, you know, on Google within a minute, find your state, you know, soil maps. And uh, it, it, it's easier than ever to find sites. I think the cat's out of the bag um, and people are finding them, you know, now and, and learning the tricks and, and they're simple. What, what's hard is developing them and developing them well and building, you know, great products and experiences. But <clears throat> it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like the, the old days, you know, 15 years ago when, when that technology wasn't available. There's, there's so much technology now, now available to us. What would you say are some of the ways that this property is similar to other dream golf properties? And what are some of the ways that it's unique or that it stands alone? Well, so uh, topographically, it's, it's very unique. And I'll end on that. Um, the, way it's, the way the project is similar is golf will come first, second, and third, right? Like we make every, every decision that we make about the development is built on the foundation of, of building you know, great, uh, accessible, you know, golf and putting, putting that first. So that's what it had, you know, when we call it a dream golf project, that's what it has in common with Bandon or Sand Valley golf as it was, you know, meant to be played on the ground, you know, walking. Um, that's, that's, that's what they all have in common. Topographically, it, it's very different. I mean, it's choppy, uh, pure sand dunes. You know, Bandon has pockets of sand. You know, early on in packed dunes and and toward the end, and and it's very sandy. I shouldn't say pockets of sand, but it has pockets of these choppy dunes. Th- this entire site is is chop. It's it's dune chop, and reminded me immediately of you know Western Ireland. Um, so topographically, it's very different than Sand Valley, where you have these valleys and ridges. Um, you know, Bandon plays along the ocean and has a lot of hard pan near the ocean. Clearly, the the ocean is spectacular. And then, like I said, pockets of, of dunes. But topographically, these are sand dunes. Um, they range in size and amplitude. Uh, there's nice, healthy quarters between them, uh, which is great. You know, more width, more 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 angles, more strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 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 unlike visually uh, the other sites. There's not a single tree on the site, right? These are this is all you know in in the central, uh, you know, in the western you know plains. So there's there's prairie flowers and grasses, but nothing taller than sort of waist high, for miles and miles and miles and miles. Um, you know, it looks like an ocean of rolling choppy sea. Maybe you could tell me about the process that led to selecting Jimmy Craig as the designer of the first course at Rodeo Dunes. People who know golf architecture know that Craig has worked for Corin Crenshaw, 
for a number of years and was a driving force behind the Sandbox Project at the Sand Valley Resort in Wisconsin, which obviously you you own and operate. Uh, so tell me about how you got to the point where you finally hired Jimmy as the designer of this first course. So Chris and I hired Bill and Ben uh, first to, to, to route their golf course. They routed it first, but they, they made clear early on that they had a lot of projects going and they weren't sure when they were able to to build it. So we, we hired them, um, uh, first I, you know, I'd always had, um, you know, a fantasy as an armchair architect of, of routing and building a golf course. And I just spent a lot of time out on the ground because it took four years to get the deal done. So every trip I would, you know, spend a day or a couple of days walking around and I knew the ground really well. It's, it's an easy site to find holes. I think anybody will, would go out there and you just see holes in all directions, right? So it's really a game of subtraction, um, you know, to, to allow for that, you know, variety and, and the storylines to emerge in the routing. So I was working on a routing of my own and I invited a whole bunch of architect friends to come out and help me and, um, you know, give me their insights and, and edits and critiques and improvements. So I was doing that for a year or so. And I invited Jimmy out and, and I'll get to why in a, why I, think so highly of him but why i invited him out and uh he came out and made some great improvements and then he and then he stuck around and then he came back and then came back again and he just started working on it and pretty soon there wasn't really much left of my routing it was clearly jimmy's routing and it was far better so i went back to my armchair and said okay i'll let the i'll let the pros take it from here because uh, it was just so much better and more interesting and that's how I got the job. I never like reached out to Jim and said, you know, I'd like to hire you to build, you know, the first golf course at Rodeo Dunes. He's a, a friend, somebody who I respect and admire. And he came out and started helping and then he never stopped helping. And then one day we were walking off the site and I said, Jimmy, let's build that golf course. That That's incredible. And the world should see that. You're the architect. Why don't you go build it? Um, a little backstory that you alluded to with Jimmy. I got to know him on the first golf course at Sand Valley, um, where it, you know, and early the first two architects worked worked for my dad there. That was before Chris and I, you know, bought bought uh, Sand bought bought Sand Valley. Um, so I decided to make my mark by really getting to know the shapers. I was living there. I was on the ground, and and I got to know. Jim well, and, and we developed a, a trust and a relationship there. And um, I saw that he could route golf courses because he shared his routings on the property with me. And, I, and we walked them together, and, and they were very strong uh, and very unique. Um, and then he and I sort of snuck off and, and built the sandbox together and you know realized that we could work together and we did trust each other. Um, it, he, he, he and Bill's whole team, I mean, he just... He works harder than anybody, and he leaves everything out there on the field, right? I mean, he, he he'll, he'll put on the spotlights of his truck and just shape into the night. I mean, he, he becomes obsessed. Sandbox was, I mean, it was borderline. I was worried. I mean, he was just working so hard and put so much into that, and I think he knocked it out of, out of the park. Um, so couldn't have more respect for him. You know, the world has seen what he's built, you know, for Bill and Ben, you know, at Bandon Trails and, and Friars Head and um, most recently at MacArthur. But I'd, I'd seen it firsthand and knew that he had what it uh, takes. And and he just stepped up and, and grabbed the opportunity at Rodeo Dunes. I, I didn't give it to him. He just started helping and, and he never stopped helping. And now he's going to build that, that golf course. You mentioned that you had done some routings of your own for this golf course, and then Jimmy Craig came in and, and came up with ones that you thought were better. What did you notice about the way that he was routing the course that maybe you weren't able to see when you were doing your own versions of that project? Well, I just, I like the holes that ultimately that, that he added, just the variety. I mean, we we're, because it started with what I was trying to accomplish, um, I, I guess our visions aligned is just building something very unique um, and very playful uh, and fun. And you could say that, you know, any of the dream golf courses are, are 
and I would agree, are, are very fun to play. Um, but our inspiration was a course like North Berwick. We both agreed that we want to build a golf course like that. And what what um, is frustrating to both of us is when we hear, as people have said for a long time, you know, North Berwick is it's the most fun. It might be the most fun golf course, but right there's always a a but. And we just thought, or, or both agree, as I'm, I'm sure you and others do, that there doesn't have to be a period after the most golf fun golf course in the world. You can just stop it right there. Like that's our goal. So what I liked about Jimmy's routing is that he had, he added holes that uh, met that criteria better than, than the holes on, on my routing and, and did so, you know, the other condition is that it, it um, each hole is completely unique from all the others. So he added holes that fit that, but that were unique from all of the others. You know, he, he just saw things differently and, and saw new holes out there that were just pure fun um, and completely different than any of the holes, you know, that, that I had seen, you know, out there. So that's that's the gist of it. Um, you know, the flow is great, but it, it just really fun hole. Every one of the holes you're going to remember. I could, I could promise you that. And you're not going to confuse any one hole with any other hole on his routing. So when you think about a fun golf course, a golf course that prioritizes fun and maybe is inspired by North Berwick in some way, are you thinking along the lines of a shorter course or a quirkier course or a course with holes that maybe seem a little bit crazy, but then when you play them, they're really fun? What, yeah. what comes to mind when you think all, of that? All of that. Of I mean, the, the ground is not like North Berwick. There, there are some sections of the ground that are similar and there's even a hole you know modeled after is it perfection the, the 14th hole or, or his third plays very similarly um, but it's more you know being okay with with less length um, I mean speaking for myself I, I I'm a lousy golfer and I don't I don't like hitting long irons right it's just not fun even if I find the hole you know intellectually stimulating and could say that's a fabulous golf hole the reality is if you give me a three iron it, it, it's it, it's it's not as fun to me as you know a medium length par four you know i've heard i've heard you know andy talk about uh the six at prairie dunes and i love holes like that you know 17 at stream song red where there's just so many different avenues for any golfer of any ability to play that golf hole i'm a sucker for those and I'm comfortable going heavy in those, right? Like, so to me, that's particularly fun. You mentioned quirky. There's some quirkiness to that. And I think you could overdo it if you're deliberately seeking out quirky. Um, but there's a wonderful quirkiness to to these holes on, on his um, routing, which is going to differentiate itself from Bill and Ben's because th theirs are, are such beautiful, perfect, complete, artistic comp uh, compositions, and I said this to Bill recently, and uh, you know, I, he knows what ex extreme regard I hold him in. But I don't uh, actually. I said it. We were in Dornick, and his second hole. I said, you know, Bill, I've never seen a hole. Uh, you route a hole this quirky. I mean, this is extremely quirky, and I love it. Um, so I wouldn't use that adjective to describe Bill and Ben. They're unbelievable in other ways, but Jim has added some quirkiness to the routing, and I and I think. You know that's that, that's whimsical and 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 fun, um, yeah. So length having some, not some, but you know the sixteenth green at North Berwick. Everybody says you couldn't build that today, but it's one of the most fun greens in the world to hit into and and to recover onto because you generally miss it. So why not? Why can't we have you know a green or two like that that are just um, you know a little mind a little mind bending and then. You know, I think this is true with all the courses that we build, but letting go of, you know, conventional standards of, you know, why not finish with, you know, a 280-yard uh, par four as, the, as they do at St. Andrews and Prestwick and, and North Berwick. Ours doesn't, but just letting go, obviously, of any of those, you know, conventional standards. We have five par threes. I, I'd love to see five par threes. On every golf course, I think it's fun when you could hit the full spectrum of, of shots into a variety of greens. Cabot Cliffs have six. I, I like that as well. So that's sort of, I guess, what I mean by uh, more playful. Shots that are, that are playful, you know, um, or that will reward a little, um, a little playfulness, 
right? And if probably not describing it well, but if you're stepping up, you know, trying to hit that super serious, you know, high flying, you know, fire and draw that maybe, maybe that's not the best way to, to get it close to the hole. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that could be said for Bill and Ben's as well, but just having, you know, some, some sort of playful, uh, shot shots you know as well you know one of them is a uh, a very short par three a postage stamp par three without any bunkers you know sounds pretty uh fun you know it, it might be the hardest uh par three on the routing but it's you know 110 yards without any bunkers so that's you know that's uh that'll play with your imagination for sure you know hearing you talk about this makes me think about something that's been on my mind a lot lately which is that if you look at the history of golf architecture, we've kind of shifted into a new phase roughly every two or three decades. And I think most people would agree that we're currently in an era of golf development and design that started more or less with sand hills and abandoned dunes. Have you thought about what's next in golf architecture and what the next cutting edge is going to be? And is this part of what you're moving towards with this type of design with Jimmy Craig, or is that not really something that's on your mind? Are you more kind of focused on one project at a time? Like like an athlete is focused on one game at a time. I don't think about it at a macro scale in terms of the industry, but I think about where we want to take it and just what's interesting to us. I mean, a lot of what we do is like just what, what is, what allows us to be creative and, and have fun. So I think a lot about that. And, um, this is certainly in that ilk, as is, let's say, Sedge Valley, which is you know a little little different uh, on, on the scorecard. So a couple things that you know I'd like to do differently, and and every time you know we're described as doing something new, I think there's always like a, like a historical precedent that shows that we're not all that original, and a lot of this has been done elsewhere, and we're just trying to bring that past to the present, like, like you know, building a course like Prestwick or, or North Berwick. Um, but I think I think we courses and intermediate courses that you see throughout Scotland is something we want to go heavy into here, uh, or here in the U.S. And um, th- this will be, you know, a, a championship course, but we are working on some concepts. Let's say it's just 12, 13 hole, um, you know, built more for the intermediate golfer that's fun for the advanced golfer. I think we're going to see... Uh, or we're going to be building a lot more of those. On on both of these courses, you know, one thing I'd personally like to explore for a little bit and I've talked to <clears throat> Bill and Ben and Jimmy about is just a little more economy of bunkering. Uh, you know, a, a course like Port Rush in Ireland that's just so... Um, I don't know how to describe it. And there's few bunkers today and they added half of them for the open a couple of years ago, you know? So what can we do? Like, I, and I've sort of wondered if we gave the architect a budget of 15 bunkers, uh, you know, how would we make them most impactful? And then what's left in that blank space? Um, you know, I, I, li- I listened to your, your, your conversation with Andy recently on, on Augusta and, and I've heard a lot of great podcasts from you guys on, on Augusta that original original golf course had very I think there was something like 17 bunkers when, when they opened and yeah, that's absolutely. that's you know just saw the tree farm holes like 9 and 11 11 has one that's far back that type of hole is is, is really interesting to me uh, right now so I guess my answer at least for the next couple of years and these courses we're building is we are going to add some very unconventional pars and number of holes and things like that weave those into our matrix of courses at the existing resorts and new resorts and then um, for an, another project we'll, we'll talk about it on another podcast and then here in Colorado I think some of that that frugality, that Irish frugality of, of bunkering, um, some lower, less flashy bunkering. You, you'll see that on um, Sedge Valley, you know, things, the bunkers that sit below the ground, they're easier to, to maintain. You know, these beautiful flashy bunkers are expensive to main, maintain and they're pretty, but they're, they're now, <clears throat> um, I don't want to say ubiquitous, but it, it's a style that emerged in, in the sand hills and we saw it at pack dunes and and um i just I, I like the idea of you know what can an architect do with 10 to 30 bunkers smaller bunkers with big magnets under them that draw you know draw in 
from big collection areas. But that that's what's interesting uh, to me right now. But I have no idea what, what others are going to do and where we'll be in 30 years. But over the next four or five years, I think you'll see a lot of that from us. Now, before I let you go, Michael, I have to ask one question about the Glen Golf Park, a uh, local public course in, in Madison, Wisconsin, that you and your wife, Jocelyn, helped renovate. What will people experience if they go to the Glen Golf Park in the upcoming golf season? I believe it reopened for play last July, and now it's got a full golf season upcoming. I think it's pretty unique. I've talked to Sarah Mess about it in the past. Um, what, what will people see if they go there? Well, first off, we've called it the Glen, you know, golf park. It, they'll see a lot more than golf uh, happening there. We just released the program for the year, and there's there's live music and and movies, uh, and hiking and yoga, and all, all, they'll see a, a lot of activity beyond golf. So that's the first thing that might be uh, startling. Uh, the second thing they'll they'll see is a lot of the ground. We've opened it up to the community in a physical way, removed. You know these these dense, you know, junk trees that were planted to screen the golf. That was really sending a message of you know stay out. We've removed those, you know, and uh, to make it a welcoming property so people actually see the property and be invited um, <clears throat> in. From from a golf standpoint, they'll see an entire golf course mode at one cut, you know, at, at one height, um, and there's some nice you know big broad movement. Uh, on the property, they'll see an intermediate golf course. And it's something I'd like to do at our properties, um, but with, you know, on a sandy site with, you know, a, it'd be neat to, I've, I've been excited about the Glen, but in in intermediate uh, golf course, you know, I just, it's, it's perfect for people of lower swing speeds, right? The number one demographic of people who play Glenway is senior women followed by senior men. Now we're seeing all these young people playing there, seeing a lot of college kids who are coming into the game out there. It's, it's a, um, it, it does not defend, uh, really, really well against like a, a plus two, right? I mean, you could go shoot, shoot par. And I think there are ways to build an intermediate course that is also def- defendable and i'd like to explore how to do that but um just a lot of short grass there's very few bunkers you know 60 percent of them are on one beautiful par three so a lot of short grass a lot of severe shapes on the edges and around the greens uh the greens themselves are pretty simple um you'll see a lot of people i mean it's packed um you'll see a putting course um that is often packed, right? And when you drive home from work, you'll see, you know, kids and, and families from the community who are out there, you know, putting. It's free. Just show up. We have we have the, the city has the balls and the clubs. Just go ahead and and putt. So the golf course is different in that it's sort of bunkerless, all one height, uh, really fun. You know, I, we the, the angles do matter. So if somebody like me who hits it a long way but has no idea where it's going you could put yourself into some very difficult situations where, where it is very hard to make a par. Uh, but if I'm playing, you know, against my grandmother, hits it straight. She could, you know, she can make, make, make some money uh, hustling that, you know, the young, the young men who, who play out there. So that, that's, I guess, uh, you know, uh, I hope, I hope that helps in describing what to expect I, I i would say it's uh i think it's par 32 which is super fun there's five par threes it's a nine hole course one par five um you know craig Haltom did a great job brian schneider and, uh, and brian slonick were out there uh jay blasey came out and helped sarah mess was a big part of it so it was a, a really fun collaboration among those architects uh and others and um there may be some more uh, projects coming coming soon. I'll I'll leave you with that cliffhanger. But the the city's enjoyed it, and and Jocelyn and I had a lot of fun doing it. So we want to we, we'd like we'd love to be a part of golf's future uh, beyond Glenway in in Madison, and we'll see where that goes. Excellent. All right. Well, that's that's very exciting. I'm looking forward to getting out there myself at some point. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Garrett, thanks so much for your time. It was really fun and look forward to our next conversation.
This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by USGA Memberships. One of the many benefits of a USGA membership is that you get your very own USGA bag tag. The USGA bag tag represents many things to many different people. For some, it's a reflection of their support for programs that bring more players to the game. For others, it shows that they care about ensuring that golf has a long and sustainable future. For many, it's a symbol of their love and support for the game. Whatever it means to you, become a USGA member today and rep the tag by visiting usga.org slash fried egg. Again, that's usga.org slash fried egg. Okay, so I'm back here with Meg. Meg, how are you doing? Doing great, doing great. Yeah, you, fun? you didn't I get mean... too bored while I was talking to Michael? No, no, no. All good. All good here. <laughs> to be clear, she wasn't there during the during the conversation and just not talking. I recorded it at a different time. But anyway, we're back to talk about the Chevron Championship. Uh, this was held at the club at Carlton Woods outside of Houston, Texas. You know, this for the sake of clarity, this is the tournament formerly known as the ANA Inspiration, the Kraft Nabisco Championship, and the Dinah Shore. Did I miss any names? I mean, there have been a bunch of names. Yeah, I think I think Colgate was in the title Colgate, there for right. a little that was, bit. It was but, the Colgate Dinosaur, is what yeah. it was called for a while. But I mean, we'll we'll forgive you for that one. It's been a, a you know hodgepodge. Years. Yeah, mm-hmm, of sponsors and names and yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, it was held at Mission Hills Country Club in the Palm Springs area for for fifty one years to be exact. But then Chevron became the title sponsor a couple of years ago. Decided to move it to Texas, so that's where we are first edition of the Chevron Championship at Carlton Woods was won by Lilia Vu. She beat Angel Yin in a playoff. Nelly Corda was one shot back in solo third place. And several players tied for fourth, including Ataya Titikun, A. Lim Kim, and Albin Valenzuela. So first of all, Meg, what should we know about Lilia Vu? Lilia Vu's having a heck of a year. Watching her go low and make pretty much everything she looked at in Thailand when she won her first victory from behind, mm-hmm. which I think this was, was in key... February of this year, right? The, yep. the, the Thailand tournament, which I think was a key advantage for her yesterday. Um, you know, being behind and not playing in that final group, you know, that's how she won her first victory a few months ago. She's got that, that, that next year. And I always talk, I, I've talked about that before, but she, she can rattle off a bunch of birdies in a row she doesn't really back down. You saw tough conditions on on Sunday. She had a 68. I believe that was the low round with um, with uh, Jin Young-Ko shot 68. Georgia Hall shot 68. So that was that was as low as it got on Sunday. And she's had some struggles. You know, um, she's been open about it. Been open about almost quitting the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stud at UCLA, and then didn't really hit the ground running when she when she left college. She was on the Symmetra tour for a while, right? She yeah. was a Symmetra tour grinder and has only recently really ascended full time to the LPGA tour. Yep, yeah. Talked to I mean, she's been open about it too. Like talked about how she isn't really pairing how she's playing on the golf course with her self-esteem and how she's feeling overall in in other aspects of her life. And I think that's just freed her up and we've seen her playing totally loose, totally freed up. Um, she set herself up for not only the international crown coming up, but pretty much a lock for Solheim. Uh, so the timing of this ascension is, is really, really, really great. And I think Sunday was what we've seen from her this year. Really, really, uh, great with the, with the flat stick, you know, makes, makes a ton, a ton of putts, sneaky long. Uh, and that's kind of what you needed out at Carlton Woods this week with the kind of wet, tough conditions. It was cold Sunday. I just think that she's figured it out and maybe it took her a little bit longer. We're so used to kind of, you know, some teenage phenoms and people not even going the college route on the LPGA tour. Um, but she's got it clicking. Uh, I, I really don't think this is going to be the last we hear of her. She's going to have some big stages, like I said, with the International Crown and Solheim Cup coming up and excited to see uh, how long she can keep this hot streak going. It's a very, very hot streak that she's on. I'm sure there will, there will probably be some sort of a cool down, but she's got the game to to be around and be in the mix here for for a while. So, would you say that it was a pretty sleepy Sunday until basically the last hour of action at Carlton oh, yeah. Woods? 
So, yeah. okay. So, you know, like it was a little bit gray. It was a little bit cold. Scoring was kind of in neutral, right? It wasn't super high, but it also wasn't super low. But then some chaos really came about in those yeah. last moments of the tournament. So what were some of the things that happened down the stretch that were kind of weird and, and just random? It got that feeling of the the train wreck that you can't really look away for right. a while for a while there with 18. And it was all it was crazy how it was all mostly on 18. So I really thought kind of coming down the stretch that it was going to be a tie to Kuhn, you know, breaking through for her first major win, 20-year-old just stud uh, from Thailand. And uh, her group, she's playing with Alim Kim. They come down 18. Ataya goes for it in two, which, you know, I like the aggressive play. Hindsight's twenty twenty. She doesn't didn't necessarily need to do that. She could have, uh, you know, just got her five and been in the playoff. Uh, she goes for it in two, comes up well short, ends up with a double bogey seven. She's out of contention. Uh, her playing partner, Alim Kim, was solid throughout the day. I believe she was eight under on 18. Alim Kim, by the way, U.S. Open winner. Yeah, yeah, yep. So been here, been here before, been on the big stage, and just comes up with a world-class shank on on her approach. And <laughs> it, it, I mean... It was pure. The camera barely kept up with it. Um, it was... <laughs> it was... I'm not glad the crowds weren't that great, but I'm glad it wasn't packed in there because, yeah, it was coming in right off, right off the toe, and it's like, okay, what's what just happened here? That was two shots back to back, and then we get Angel Yin's group coming in. She's playing with Allison Corpus, who's out of it at that point, and Corpus goes smartly because of how 18 was set up. With water short and the grandstand long, she tubs up and just launches one, you know, well over the green. Ends up in the mesh backing of the of the grandstand. <laughs> and then I hadn't seen, maybe I'd missed it, but I hadn't seen the drop zone until then, which was almost on the green. So yes, she right. Gets it was just off the green. You were you were basically putting. And I don't know, like, this is obviously in, she's playing in the final group with Angel Yin. Angel Yin maybe hadn't seen the drop zone throughout the week. Maybe the drop zone changed. I'm not sure based on pin location. But Angel Yin saw where that drop zone was, which kind of makes her under clubbing in the playoff even more of an inexplicable decision. Right. Um, So, yeah, just weirdness. I mean, I'm glad there was some of the chaos, but it that wasn't necessarily the the good type of chaos with you know exchanging birdies and and you know fireworks at the end. It was kind of the the not so good type of fireworks, uh, but it did make for a fun ending to what had been kind of a sleepy day. Well, you know, it wouldn't be this tournament if we didn't have a super stinky final hole involving water and ridiculous grandstands and TIO relief. And all of that, right? We had that at Mission Hills Country Club to varying degrees over the years. You know, there were jokes about the 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 Great Wall of Dinah, uh, the, the big blue wall behind the green that was such a convenient backboard for many players. But really, they kind of recreated that situation here. And it wasn't good. <laughs> like, you know, clearly the, the play was to just fire two clubs too many right at the grandstands. Yeah, yeah. And you, I mean, had a great chance to... Uh birdie it doing it that way i mean it, yeah. it was it was crazy yeah because um, of where the drop zone was right yeah were yeah. you a fan of the the texas shaped green out in the <laughs> out in the lake i mean look, <laughs> well we'll get into it a little more but this course all right, all right. <laughs> was not was not a major championship caliber course uh you know yeah. all, all respect to jack nicholas you know as a player but his architecture is uh not doing it for me at this at this venue um yeah. So, okay. It was kind of a weird Sunday. You know, gotta, gotta admit it. Lilia Vu did what she had to do. She shot 68 on Sunday. She birdied her last two holes in regulation and she survived the playoff. That's how you win a major, right? You can't say that she sort of backed into this. She went out and won it, but yeah. Nellie Corda had just an odd Sunday. She seemed to be a little bit down mentally. I, I'm not exactly sure what was going on with her. But she was close enough, and she suddenly eagled the last hole, and she's in solo third. You know, it just seemed like she's in a different class than a lot of the players she was competing against for this title. 
and it seemed like one that she really should have reached out and gotten. Jin Young Ko had not that great of a weekend, but she played decently. Brooke Henderson, same thing. Minji Lee had some moments, but was basically a non-factor on the weekend. Lydia Ko missed the cut. And so a lot of the top players in the women's game, you know, Lilia Vu is the 12th ranked player in the world. She's not, she's not just a random winner here, but are you a little bit frustrated? Are you getting a little bit frustrated that the top players currently don't seem to be stepping up in majors? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the standout from that list is Lydia Ko. That was, I shot, I was, would have never guessed that she was going to miss the cut this a three week. over or something like that. Yeah. Miss the mean, cut she, fairly comfortably. I think it was the first miss cut in like almost two years yeah. and she made the cut at majors. I think her streak was 14. So as she talked before and like, I think on her press conference Wednesday about how when she'd played out here, she'd like had almost lost every ball she had in her bag. And it was just, so maybe, maybe we can, you know, chalk it up to just not a good fit for her. But I also, I mean, your Lydia Ko level of player, like you make it work, even if the course isn't a good fit for you. It, it, it yeah, it's super frustrating. I was pulling for Nelly. I thought, um, Things just set up perfectly for her with her being the biggest name on the board. Uh, her floor, I mean, that that putt on 18 was the only putt she made the entire yes, day. Exactly. So yeah. her floor, I think, is that much higher than even you know the, the top players. You could even say her floor is probably higher than Lydia and Jin Young-Ko. Mm-hmm. I mean, she... she I'd say definitely, does. right? Yeah, she's, she's long and she can go really, really low. Yeah, so disappointment from Lydia for not even making the weekend. Disappointment from Nelly on Sunday, just not putting the pieces together when she probably didn't even need to put them all perfectly together. Exactly. You know, this, this is one of those ones where she could have won with her B game. I mean, kind yes. of like John Rahm did at the Masters. Like, yeah, he he won by a substantial margin, but I didn't get the sense that he was really firing on all cylinders for most of that tournament. These are the kinds of majors that Nelly can win because she is, you know, sort of the John Rahm of the women's game right now. She's that she's that buoy type player, as the No Laying Up <laughs> yeah, podcast yeah. likes to say, where she just is so strong a ball striker that she's just never really out of it, never really doesn't have a chance. It's frustrating because, like, I thought Saturday set up to be so much potential for a great, great day out there. The weather finally turned. There were it was way more crowded out there on Saturday than Sunday. And you had Nellie, Brooke, and Patty Tabotanicut. And the group just stunk. Like it, I think and maybe that rubbed off a little bit on Nellie. Again, same thing with Lydia missing the cut at that caliber of player. Even if your group's not playing solid, you gotta, you know, not let that affect you. And it was just I, I think she played with Huju Kim on Sunday. Nelly did, and you know Huju Kim didn't do much either. So it's like there was never. It just she just got stuck and never got out of it for the weekend. And yeah, it, I was I was bummed to see. I thought Saturday after the second round, the leaderboard was shaping up to be a really exciting weekend, and people just fell away, mm-hmm. except for Nelly, except for Lilia Vu. And you know, yes, Lilia Vu is top. She'll be top ten player now after that win but that's all within you know six months yeah essentially a little bit longer maybe so if you haven't been following along that was a new name to you and definitely worthy definitely worthy champion but yeah for chevron's first year yes they got a fun finish with all the wackiness and the playoff but yeah you definitely were if you're them hoping that nelly was your champion on sunday yeah and i hope i hope that retrospect makes this win and this tournament a little bit more exciting. Sometimes time does that, right? We we look back on some of Brooks Kepka's first wins, like the Aaron Hills win at the time. That seemed a little bit like a, you know, a third or fourth tier major. Maybe it still seems like that, but now we look back on it and Brooks is a four-time major winner, the best major player of his generation. And we kind of appreciate that one for that reason. Maybe, maybe we'll get to, to that place with Lilia Vu. But the thing is, you know, I've been fooled before with winners of women's majors in the past few years. We've had Yuka Sasso. I convinced myself that she was the next superstar, and maybe she will be. She's still very young, but she hasn't won since her U.S. Open win. 
since uh, since Olympic Club. She hasn't been around winning tournaments. Patty Tanikit, the same deal. She's had real struggles, and she's starting to get back in form, which is great to see. But she had a really bad weekend at the Chevron. And I was also convinced when when Patty Tavitanikit won, I guess it was the ANA Inspiration at the time at Mission Hills. I thought this is a superstar. She's so long. She's so dominant. She's going to win multiple majors in the next few years, and she just hasn't. So I hope that we see some of that out of Lilia Vu, or that we see some sort of center of gravity start to form in the women's game because it's a little bit missing right now. We see Nelly Corda and Jin Young Ko and Lydia Ko as having outstanding abilities. We see Brooke Henderson and uh, you know Lexi Thompson obviously being very popular players who are also top six or seven players in the world, but we're just not seeing them go head to head in majors very much. And I, I wish that would happen more often. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, if it, if we weren't going to get that, um, the, the top players all together vying for a major championship, I'm glad that it happened at this major championship and that we still have Pebble, Baltus Rall, Walton Heath later this year where you know, those are definitely another tier of major in the women's mm-hmm. game. And so, yeah, I'm crossing my fingers. We can, we can see that all come together at one of those, you know, later this year. Speaking of tiers of majors, Good segue is the Chevron there, right? championship still a major, right? <laughs> it's moved away from the Palm Springs area. You know, it was always sort of a second tier major. It was not on the level of the U.S. Women's Open. Now, the, the Women's Open, the British Open, has not been around for very long, actually. I believe that the Chevron Championship has a deeper history than the Women's Open. I may be wrong, but but yep. I think that the British Open is a fairly recent invention. And so there's some, some genuine history here, but the course wasn't wonderful, and it always just felt like a bit of a sleepy major, but it was definitely a major. We had a tradition there. One of the most important tournaments in the history of the LPGA Tour and women's golf. And so as long it was as it was in that setting, you had the traditions, you had the dinosaur weekend around it, you had all of these trappings of a real major championship. Now it's at Carlton Woods. How would you break down the ways that it has and hasn't retained the feeling of a major? First off, like when it comes to the is it a major question? If you're asking the question, I think you have your answer. There's been talk of like, you know, what's the formula that makes a major? Like it there is no formula. It's it should be obvious. It should be clear cut what are the majors and what are, you know, the next year. Listen, like when when Dinah Shore threw her name in to the event and brought all that attention to the LPGA, it moved the LPGA's timeline of growth up years, decades, probably. And I think if we look, you know, this didn't happen overnight. The decline didn't happen overnight. And I wrote about that. You know, it's not something that, oh, Dinah was incredible until, you know, recently. Like, it's been a slow decline. And I think the first, like, big problem that happened with with the event was it losing the name, the Dinah Shore. That matters when it's a major that's the history. That's the, you know, we talked about this in the men's game with the sponsors changing hands for regular events. Well, that happened for a major with a true legacy and history on the LPGA. You lose that name, it goes through this carousel of sponsors, and now you have Chevron coming in, which if you're LPGA, a sponsor with the, as big as Chevron is great. The move, I think the other, besides losing the dinosaur name, when the announcement to move it to Houston was made, it was a giant whiff to put it at the club at Carlton Woods. Huge, 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 cannot overstate that when you, I mean, when you, when you see the, the venues that majors are playing at, they're, most, they're supposed to make you say, whoa, hell yeah, that's going to be great. Mm-hmm. This may be go to Google yeah. to look up Who? what it is. What? Yeah. Yeah. So that is a major disappointment. And I know they have this contract for, you know, to be there five more years, but it's it just is frustrating that you have this sponsor with the means to take it anywhere. 
and you have a women's game that you can take majors to places that the men can't play. And we're at a housing development course that looks like lots of other housing development courses. Mm -hmm. So the two big misses there, I will, you know, like credit where credit is due. Chevron had a ton of like, you know, charitable features uh, for the tournament this year. They've, they're obviously committed with, with, you know, coming in in the contract for, for six years. But I just think that this discussion is going to continue for a while until it, it gets on the next level of the U.S. Women's Open, the Women's mm-hmm. British, and the Women's PGA. The, pro- the, the frustrating thing is that the formula was right there for mm-hmm. Chevron. Like you said, the Women's British Open was an embarrassingly not good event. Until at, pretty at, recently. At, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, they and then they started the going to the right courses. Yes. And, now they're and, going and, to Walton Heath this year, which is going to be awesome. Yes, Talk about yeah. a historic course that the men can't go to really anymore. Exactly. They, they did exactly. for the British Masters recently, but not for a major. And, and right. that is going to be incredible. And yes, it, the the like just look at the courses and you see why there's a dividing line yep. between the majors. I know yeah. that's not the one the, you know the most important factor, but it's very important. Yeah. Um, I, I would the, argue I that it's common, just about the most important factor. Yeah, the, it, the, I mean, venue, the venues matter here. I mean, there's as soon as the the other the the real women's major started going to Pebble Beach and Baltusrol and Walton Heath, then things really turned around with them because there were some questions about the women's PGA championship for a while. Mm-hmm. There were some questions even about the U S women's open for a while, though that has long been the most established women's major venues matter deeply. And the Carlton Woods thing is baffling to me. Yeah, it's baffling. And I think if you look at, okay, well, those other three majors have a common denominator that there's a governing body. You know, these are the the caretakers, if you will, of the game, the USGA, the RNA, and the PGA. And then you have Chevron and Evian, which is, you know, they've got the human energy company and a, a water company behind them. And it's like, you know, so not only the course and the and the purses aren't matching up, they just don't fit. And it's it's, I don't know, there's no easy fix. There's no... You know, I wrote there's no ba- magic bullet, but like getting that purse up there with the other ones. I know money doesn't buy you a major, but it's 5.1 million. The other ones are upwards of eight and 10 million. And <laughs> you have a lot of room to improve from Carlton Woods. You can make a big leap changing up the venue. That's not I mean, it's not going to solve the problem, but it would it would do a lot of good. All right. One more quick break, and we'll be back with some storylines to track in the coming weeks. All right, I wanted to take a quick break here to talk about Club TFE. This is the Fried Eggs membership. You can go to thefriedegg.com slash membership to find out more information about what we're offering here. It's $120 a year, and we give you a lot of stuff in return for that. One of the things that we give you is a weekly course profile. These are extensive write-ups, photo essays about a variety of great golf courses. So let me just tell you about some of the ones that we've done recently. Just last week, Andy wrote about Chicago Golf Club. It was really a sensational piece of writing and some of the imagery that we have for that course. I know I'm biased, but I think it's just awesome. The pictures that Andy has taken, the illustrations that Cameron Hurtis does for us, uh, really cool. We've also recently written about Ohupi Match Club, Common Ground Golf Course, Roaring Gap Club, Lasonia Lynx, the Country Club of Troy, TPC Sawgrass, Oak Hill Country Club, the East Course, the upcoming venue of the PGA Championship, Essex County Club, Old McDonald at Bandon Dunes. So as you can hear, there's a mix that we're going for. There's the resort courses, there's the private courses, there's the public courses, affordable courses. So we're really trying to cover the full spectrum, but the priority is to find interesting golf architecture and dig as deeply into it as possible while also giving you some imagery, some photos, some illustrations to enjoy. 
So that's one aspect of the Club TFE membership. Again, go to thefrieday.com slash membership to check it out. All right, Meg, storylines that we're tracking this week. What is your storyline? Uh, my storyline, we're going to continue with the LPGA route. They, you know, from a, a scattered start, they were kind of hitting our stride here after the first major. Um, for Lilia Vu, what a dream. This, she goes to Wilshire this week for the LA Championship. Wilshire was UCLA's home course from her college days. So should be a really cool, warm welcome for her back home. Then we stay in California for the International Crown the following week. I'm super excited uh, to see how that all comes together. I'm really hopeful coverage-wise uh, we're going to get a, a solid broadcast and get to see all the different formats and and get a good look at all the teams throughout the week. Uh, and then after that, we go up to New Jersey for the Founders Cup. That's an upper Montclair. Um, a really, talk about history. That's kind of the whole point of that event is to honor the history of the founders of the LPGA. So again, hitting our hitting the stride here. It's also convenient. It's at a sleepyish time in the PGA Tour. You know, Mexico this week up against Wilshire. I'll be tuning into Wilshire. Um, I think Wells Fargo is next on the PGA. You know, that's International Crown Weekend. So for all we kind of, you know, railed on the beginning part of the schedule, this is kind of a sweet spot here. Mm -hmm. It should be really fun to watch the Lily Vu with a homecoming next week and International Crown. I mean, that's I've had that mark since it was announced it's coming back. Uh, super, super excited for that to for that to get here. Agreed. Yeah. And I want to see Nellie Korda and Jin Young Ko and Lydia Ko and Brooke Henderson really start to step up here. And Ataya Titikun, too. I mean, exciting, young, I believe, 20-year-old player. And so superstar you know, potential, superstar her. potential would, would love to see it happen. And this is a good time for it to happen. It's a bit of a soft spot in the rest of the uh, professional golf schedule and a good time for the LPGA tour to, to really show its stuff. All right. So my storyline is more of a summer long storyline, but I think that this is going to be, or could be a big summer for creative public golf. So the park at West Palm Beach just opened, and you heard about that on the last episode of the Fried Egg Podcast with Andy and Jim Wagner. So big deal there. Um, you know, go to that podcast if you if you want to hear more about it. But in addition to that, we also have the Glen Golf Park in Madison, Wisconsin, which Michael and I talked about briefly in our conversation. That's going to have its first full season. And the loop at Shaska in Shaska, Minnesota is going to reopen sometime in the late summer. This is another exciting public golf, small scale public golf project. So the Glen Golf Park, obviously, you know, it's going to be a great experiment in balancing golf with other uses of the same space, which is something that I think so many public courses should consider doing. And then the loop at Shaska is a short course expressly designed for adaptive golfers. Benjamin Warren is the lead architect on the project, up and coming architect. And some of the greens were actually shaped by Jimmy Craig, who is now working on the first course at Rodeo Dunes. And I'm eager, first of all, to see both of these courses in person. I want, I want to try to make that happen. And second of all, just to hear how the experiments work out, whether these courses are going to be successful. There's a lot of creative energy in golf development and architecture right now. And because of capitalism, most of that energy is being devoted to private developments and high-end resorts. But if the Glen Golf Park and the Loop at Shaska are successful, I wonder if we're going to see some of the ideas behind them become contagious because there are some radical ideas here, right? The, a different vision for a golf course is evident in the Glen Golf Park and the Loop at Shaska, that the access to the space, bringing in non-golfers, bringing in adaptive golfers, making things extremely accessible. All of that stuff is really, those are good messages to put out to the public about what golf is doing. And they're good ways to make projects happen because you're saying we're trying to do something good for the community here. So you can get community buy-in. And then sort of on the down low, you can sneak in some good architecture. You can sneak in some cool greens. You can sneak in some tree removal, some wide fairways. All this stuff is possible to do. You can do this stuff and you don't have to sell it as 
nerdy highbrow architecture. You can sell it as a project where we're bringing in the community. And that can be genuine. That's not just a selling point. That's a big deal. But in the meantime, you can do some cool architecture. And I think that that's what is really cool about both of these uh, course projects. So the Glen Golf Park and the Loop at Shaska and also the park at West Palm Beach. I think those are exciting projects that you should uh, track this summer. Will and I actually got to walk the park when we were down there for a quick trip and can echo everything Andy said. It's incredible what they've done. Uh, walked away, just kind of kept saying wow to each other that they, they, they thought of everything down there. And it's, it's really nice to see maybe trends moving in a different direction than, than they have in the past. And yeah, excited for all those projects. All right, Meg, thank you so much. Thanks, Garrett. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One great thing that you can do for the Fried Egg, aside from joining Club TFE, is simply to rate and review this podcast in iTunes. Tell us how you're reacting to the episodes, give us a rating, and that really helps us find new listeners and continue to expand what we're doing here. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.